Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 5, starting with verse 12. What we saw the last time was that the believers, we saw their response to tribulation and also the difference between giving from a pure heart and giving from a hypocritical heart. And we saw that uh, exemplified in Ananias and Sapphira. Today we're going to see more persecution. It's going to increase to include imprisonments and beatings to the apostles, starting with verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, again, in the beginning of chapter 5, we saw the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira and the example that God made of their lies and their hypocrisy. Here we're starting off with more of God's great miracles wrought through the apostles. Now, similar to Moses and the prophets, the apostles fulfilled a special type of office. In 1 Corinthians 12, we see the office of the apostleship mentioned. They laid down the foundation for the church on top of Christ, who was the cornerstone, which they ushered in the age of grace and the age of the gospel. And we see that in 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, Peter reiterates that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Okay? And we, as lethoi, or living stones, are built upon that uh, foundation, and we build a spiritual house, a royal priesthood. But Jesus is always the foundation. Wearsby says that apostles and prophets laid the foundation, but pastors, teachers, and evangelists build upon that foundation. I find it interesting that some today still call people in their church apostles. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with that because according to Acts 1.22, one of the requirements of an apostle was that person had to view the resurrected Christ. So in its strictest sense, I don't believe that, you know, I believe the apostleship has has departed. It's, it fulfilled its usefulness and, usefulness and is not here anymore. So if somebody calls themselves apostles, I would say, when was, when, so what was the date that you saw the resurrected Christ? But verse 14, it says, none of the rest joined. Now, there was a respect for ecclesiastical office, which we don't see a whole lot of that today. And, and I kind of narrowed it down to two reasons that I've come up with. Number one, society in general relaxes or lacks respect for those it should. Society lacks respect for marriage. And sadly to say that the statistics on Christian marriage are not better than, not much better than those on the unbelieving world. So marriage in our society is something we should respect, but it, there's really a lack of respect for it. You see adultery and, and uh, affairs, uh, sin, <laughs> glamorized in the, in the TVs and the movies, right? The older generation... Um, when I was a little kid, I was taught, respect your elders, you know, the gray-haired person. You don't talk back to them. You speak with them with respect. Today, you see a lot of that has gone away. Um, older people are usually the targets of scams and uh, abuse, right? Uh, police, teachers, uh, church authority, it, it, you don't see that much of the, that respect for that. Now, there's a bumper sticker that I think sums it up. You ever see those bumper stickers that say, question authority? kind of sums the whole thing up. We have, yeah, we have the society of wherever there's an authority figure, question it, right? Which brings me to my next point, is that unfortunately, 
especially with church authority, they kind of brought that on themselves. I just read this morning before I came here uh, that the, the Diocese of Los Angeles just paid $660 million to roughly 50 uh, claimants for clergy sex abuse. Okay, so, you know, people are not having a whole lot of respect for that. And on the evangelical side, there's a lot of greed. There's a lot of, uh, in the evangelical movement, is people just looking to be rich and making a lot of money off the back of the gospel. Uh, false doctrine is out there and lack of love. Verse 13 and 14, it says that none of the rest joined, but believers were added. Well, that's interesting because there was a caution to join the leadership, but converts were made nonetheless. I see the combination of the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira and the intense persecution probably weeded out the casual Christians from the group, which is something you don't really see today. It was a purifying effect. The people who weren't serious didn't join. I mean, there was just a lot of works of the Holy Spirit. There was a lot of um, even judgment happening. And if, you know, the, only the serious people joined, not the ones that were dawdlers. So verse, for, verse 15, excuse me, uh, you, talk, you see some incredible healings. It talks about Peter's shadow. It says that they hoped at least Peter's shadow would fall on them, that they might receive healing. Now, that's a very interesting scripture. And I want to join that to Acts chapter 19, which we will get to. It says that God wrought unusual miracles uh, through Paul, that even his handkerchief had a, a, a healing effect on people, which is pretty, very interesting. Unusual means not common. This wasn't a common thing. But God used these miracles to go through Paul. But we're going to get to that in Acts 19. In Peter's case, did it really happen, or did they just hope it would happen? Well, it's hard to tell from the wording, but you would believe that it probably did happen. Now, what I like to bring that to, if it did, was that it was similar to the hem of Jesus' garment. Remember the woman who had the flow of blood? We covered that, and she couldn't stop the bleeding for many years. She went to all types of doctors, and they couldn't help her. And then she was very frail and weak, and Jesus was in a crowd, and she went to touch him. And she said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. And she did, and she was made well. Now, what we learned was it wasn't the garment that had healing ability. There were two things going on. It was the ability of God to heal, number one. And the other thing was her faith. And those two, two things worked together to, uh, to have a healing effect in her life. So even if the shadow did pass over somebody, it wasn't the shadow. It wasn't a magical shadow, but it was God's ability plus the faith of these people. And if it did, I could say 100% with certainty is that it wasn't tied to money. And we're going to go later on into Acts where somebody approaches uh, uh, Peter and, and says, can I buy that power? He sees the power of the Holy Spirit, and he says, what can I do to get that power? And Peter rebukes him for that sharply and and cautions him that his you know salvation isn't in question there and we're going to see that so money's never tied to uh god's power and the, so so i mean i would just say this certainly the apostles didn't get their own cable channel speak with an accent and sell the miracle hanky for just 29.99 <laughs> you ever see those those infomercials under the guise of christianity you just buy this, this miracle hanky for $29.99, you'll never get sick again. I just don't think, I don't see the apostles doing that. But Verse 16. So you see that the multitudes, if you actually read 16 by itself, you would almost think you were reading the Gospels. 
because the sick were brought in. They were brought in on couches. People were healed. They came to Jerusalem. They had unclean spirits, and the spirits were cast out. You would just take this and think it was a portion of the gospel. But it's happening with the apostles. So it's like a rerun of Jesus' ministry. Jesus did the same thing. Then Jesus died, and then the apostles were dejected. And they had no power in their lives until the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they were revived again, right? So there's two types of people that we see. The first category is those who trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior, those who are on fire for the Lord. And in the second category, as we're going to see, is everyone else. You have the unbelievers, the make-believers, and the stale religious system, all kind of lumped into the same group here. And my question is, what group do you want to be in today? How many of you have trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If you haven't, why not? You see, God looks at people in two different ways, those who want that relationship with him and those who don't really care to have that relationship with him. We're going to talk a lot about relationship today and our relationship with our creator. And to me, I liken people who are not really on fire for the Lord is put that in a marriage situation. It's almost like a husband and wife staying together just because you shouldn't get divorced, but they don't really like each other, but they're just kind of doing it because it's the thing to do. Why not have a great marriage? Why not love your spouse? Why not serve your spouse? Why not have fruit in your marriage that other people can see that? And I see the same thing with God. Some people's attitudes is that, well, you know, I'll go to church on Sunday. I'll say my prayer at night. And that's, that's what I'm giving God. But why not have a, a dynamic relationship with your creator, a two-way street, you know, something that, that bears fruit in your life? Recently, somebody uh, did some work on my house, and he, you know, I was preaching to them at lunch. There was a few guys, and they were eating their lunch, and I, I came outside. I'm like, this is the best time to preach to them. They can't go anywhere. They're eating lunch. So I started to preach to them, and, you know, just... In, in layman's terms, help them understand about God and all that. And the guy was kind of moved by what I was saying. But he said, you know, I don't think I can do that. He goes, I got a lot to, I got problems. I, I got to clean up my life. I curse too much. I smoke. I do this, I do that. And I said, bro, God loves you. He already died for your sins. Take it in baby steps. What do I have to do? Well, first repent and believe. And he said, well, I don't really have much faith. Well, my answer, I got an answer for everything. <laughs> but my answer to that is, uh, Sure, faith starts small. And I just tell people, go home when there's nobody around in, in silence and just look up to God and say, all right, this crazy guy told me about you and I don't really know who you are. I don't know anything about you, but Lord, I want to know who you are. Take those baby steps and, and ask God to reveal himself to you, right? And he'll grow that faith and you'll start that relationship with him. So it starts small and it, it can be very fruitful over time. And the church basically is here to help to guide you so you can grow on your own. We've, we've uh, covered in Acts chapter 4. We provide solid teaching. We provide fellowship with like-minded people, prayer, and the breaking of bread. And I encourage you, we try to do a lot with fellowship. We have the two barbecues a year. We have the men's fellowship. You know, uh, every Saturday we have the, uh, the, the women's fellowships, the women's Bible studies, the prayer nights. And what we try to do is we try to encourage you to get to know each other. You're like-minded people. You're all here for the same purpose. So I would just like to encourage you, if you haven't come out to those events, that make, make an effort to do that. And I think you'll really be blessed. Make some friends. Meet some new people. And the other, the other thing I'd like to say is if you've been an onlooker up to this point, maybe today is the crossroads. Maybe today is the day to jump in with two feet. And I don't say that 
coming at you hard, but I say that as an encouragement. You know, you've been looking, you've been seeing the fruit in people's lives, you've been seeing uh, the great things that are going on here, and maybe it's time now to take that plunge, to jump in with both feet. Verse 17. Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the high priest, the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. Then one came and told them, saying, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood on us. In verse 17, it says they were filled with indignation. The Greek word is zealous, which is where we get the word zealous from. And here it indicates a jealous fervor. The apostles' popularity was stealing from the dead religious system. These people were angry at the teachings, these religious leaders. They were angry at the miracles. They were just angry. (laughs) Um, They were the Sadducees. They were the religious men. However, if you look it up, because this group existed thousands of years ago, and you can look it up in secular sources, they didn't believe in angels, which is very interesting because the angels are the one who let the apostles out of prison. (laughs) So they didn't believe in angels. It's like saying you don't believe in gravity. They didn't believe in the resurrection, and they didn't believe in the supernatural, but they were religious men in a religious system. 2 Timothy 3 says, Paul says, these people have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. It's almost almost an oxymoron if you think about it. Paul says, from such people turn away. It's pretty serious language. Rote, ritualistic, stale, religious system does not like the new work of God. Religion sometimes can be a catharsis to assuage guilt. And what I mean by that is is they want to, it's like many have this idea that they want to be right with God and probably would rather go to heaven than hell and want to do what they need to do to kind of hedge their bets and get there. So maybe it means putting money, sending a check to the church makes them feel better. Maybe it means going through certain routines and saying certain things because it'll, it'll kind of get them good. If they could get the good works better than the bad works, they got a better shot. And when you talk to them about a relationship with God, they almost look at you like you're weird. <laughs> Wait a minute. God created the mind. I mean, I could actually be reading my words on the paper, thinking of other things in my head, and watching some of your mannerisms out there, It's amazing what the human brain could do. And one Sunday I talked to you in detail about how many things go on in the human brain and the mind. So if God could make such a complex machinery like the brain, right, then he can also have a relationship with us as a father to a child. So it's really, it's not weird. It's normal, right? 
How often has religion imprisoned and murdered people throughout the ages on all sides? I read a poll uh, came out a few months ago that said American Muslims, 25% think it's okay to blow themselves up to defend their religion, right? Religion is an impetus. It was an impetus to the barrage of anti-religionists that are out there. You know, it's a backlash. Uh, a guy named Christopher Hutchins wrote a book. It's, he's getting a lot of attention now and popularity. And the book is called God is Not Great. Christians, we say God is great. Muslims say Allah Akbar, God is great. But he wrote a book that says God is not great. Sam Harris wrote a book, The End of Faith. And a lot of these anti-religionists are coming out because they despise religion. Now, the temptation among people of faith is to look at these people and be mad at them. But look at it from their perspective. They don't have the spirit of God, and all they see of, of organized religion is negative, right? Verse 19 and 20, it says, All the apostles went to the prison. But the angels let them out and commanded them to preach. This is obedience. We see this many times in the scripture. God says, I desire obedience over sacrifice. Now, if I could take that and put it to a relationship between a father and a child, you know, I have a son. Um, my son will do something and I'll say, listen, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. You know, it's offensive to me or it's, it's wrong. And okay. And then he does it again. And I say, don't do that, right? And it just keeps happening. And he keeps saying, well, I'm sorry, and I'll try not to do it again. And sometimes it gets to be so much where I actually say, but if you were truly sorry, you wouldn't do it. <laughs> you would try not to do it, right? And it's kind of the same thing with us. It's if we were obedient to God and we did what he called us to do as his children, then sacrifice would have less of a place. You see, the children of Israel had to sacrifice when they sinned. Because sin had to be covered. You can't be in the presence of God if you're sinful. So if they were disobedient, which they were often, they would have to do more sacrifices to, to atone for their sins. And I just see that relationship. God says be obedient. I think if, if people of faith were more obedient, then we would have a better reputation among the world. And these guys were obedient. I mean, they get thrown in prison. It's probably not a great experience. And then as soon as they get out, the angel says, go, go do, go do this. And they did it. In the end, you would think that the religious system would have said, wow, in the name of Jesus, this lame man was healed. By the power of Jesus, you were also released from prison. That was a good trick. Our guards were right outside. and You guys got out. That's great. Okay, we give. It kind of reminds me of maritime procedures where the captain uh, would, would go down with the sinking ship. The ship was sinking, okay? The, the established system was corrupt. It was dead. It was stale. The people's popularity turned to the apostles. But still, these people stood on that ship and went down with the ship. It's kind of like Satan. Satan knows he's going to lose, but he keeps fighting God's plan and God's people till the end. He's a master of, of trickery and deception. He's a master of ruining people's lives. That's what he does. And he knows he's going to lose, and he's trying to take down as many people with him as possible until that happens. I want to read to you uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. Jesus speaks about the parable of the wineskins. And we've covered that in Luke because it's also in Luke. But uh, actually, verse 17, Matthew 9, 17. Jesus says, Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. 
but they put new wine into the new wineskins, and both are preserved. Jesus was asked, the context is, Jesus was asked a question about um, fasting and why his disciples aren't, you know, aren't fasting and aren't following the religious system. And Jesus talks about these things. And one of the things is the wineskins. Now, what the wineskins are a representation of is the old wineskin was a picture of the old dead religious system. Now, in those days, they would take animal hides and sew them together, and they would transport wine, hence the name wineskin. The wine, when it would ferment, would expand. And because the animal skins were fresh, the, the skins would expand, too, to accommodate the wine. After amount, a certain amount of time, the fermentation would kind of come down somewhat, and the, and the skins themselves would stop being elastic. So you had your, you, the wine would become old. You'd have old wine and old wineskins. Now, if you used up the wine and you went to put new wine in old wineskins, when the new wine expanded, the wineskins didn't stretch anymore, and it would burst, and you would lose all the wine. And the picture there was that the old system was the old wineskins, and the new wine was a picture of the Holy Spirit. You can't contain the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is dynamic. It expands. So the Holy Spirit has to put into the new wineskins. We have to... Uh, change how we do things. It's now a relationship with God. It's more of a closeness. And that can contain the Holy Spirit, but not the old dead religious system. So that's what Jesus was talking about there. And said to say that some people did not move to the next level. They did not move to what God was trying to show them. Somebody told me not too long ago that um, a particular person, and I don't remember who it was, and if I did, I wouldn't say it, but a particular person had left our fellowship. And the complaint was that we were too carried away, too much Bible, too much God stuff. Can you dial it down a little bit, too, a little bit too radical for the God stuff, right? My question is, well, isn't that why we come to church, to learn about God, right? And to get excited about God, right? How about, how, what is it like to see those kids singing the songs and doing the hand motions, right? They're excited about God. When I went to VBS, the little kids, you know, I, I, I kind of asked them a question that I didn't prepare them for. I said, what did you learn today? And they all raised their hand and told me something that they learned about God. It's exciting to see, right? You can't contain it. So that's, that's okay with me. A friend and co-worker at work, um, good guy, he said to me, we were having a discussion, a good discussion, and he said to me, you know, you born-agains know that Bible. You're always quoting from that thing. <laughs> Duh, right? <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. So, you know, consider it a blessing when people say that you're too involved with God. Verse 29, then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. There's a debate in Christendom that should we fund organizations that smuggle Bibles into countries that are anti-Christian, that are against God's word and against Christianity? Should we do that? Um, some say, yeah, we should because it's God's mandate. Some say no because God's law also says in Romans 13, which I've quoted from, that we're so supposed to obey the laws of government. We're supposed to obey the laws of man, and that is true. We've covered that. However, when two laws come into conflict, one law has to be a greater law. Remember when David and his men were hungry and they went to the, uh, the high priest, Ahimelech, 
And David said, my men are really hungry. Uh, do you have anything to eat? And he said, we don't have anything except for the showbread that's only lawful for the priest to take. And he goes, but you know what? Have your men kept themselves pure? And he asked some questions and he said, yes. And he says, okay, you can eat the showbread. Now, Jesus quoted that, okay, right? We covered that. Jesus quoted that and he, Jesus agreed with that. There was the ceremonial law of the showbread and the priests, but the men were starving and it was more important to preserve life than to continue the ceremony. In this case, it's the same thing. Man has his laws. Unfortunately, some laws are demonic. You know, they go against God's nature. And in that case, the laws of God supersede the laws of man. How ironic, a police officer telling you this, right? <laughs> but, but that's not an excuse for, you know, there are those that want to, you know, uh, protest or, for lack of a better word, buck all authority. And they're always, I don't like the way the government does this. I don't want to pay taxes. I don't want to be drafted. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to. They don't like anything the government does. So, you know, and you can't, as a Christian, say, well, I don't think God would like that, so I'm going to violate all these laws. But in this particular instance, preach the gospel is more important telling people about the way of salvation than man's laws if they're against it. We had Voice of the Martyrs up here. Uh, the founder, Richard, Richard Wombrand, the pastor, was in prison in a Romanian prison for preaching the gospel, and he was told not to. He was persecuted under the Nazi regime when the Nazis controlled Romania, and then he was persecuted when the communists took over and, and the allies won, twice. Um, and also uh, Tom White, who's also on staff, was down in Cuba distributing Bibles and telling people about salvation, and he was thrown into prison for, for many years not seeing his family. But they believed, which I believe also, the mandate from God is to tell people about the way of salvation, and that supersedes any of man's laws. Verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and took counsel to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all those who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it lest you be found to fight against God. So, now we're introduced to this guy named Gamaliel. He's a historic figure as well as a biblical figure, and all the figures in the Bible are historical as well as uh, scriptural. For the longest time, nobody believed that Pontius Pilate was a real figure until they found an inscription uh, describing his office and, and uh, you know, everything about him that was dug up. Uh, I don't remember the date. But everyone said, okay, gee, I guess the Bible was right. There was a Pontius Pilate. Um, you know, there was a Gamaliel. You can look up, Google his name, you'll find out who Gamaliel was. He was the great, or he was the grandson of the well-known Rabbi Hillel. Some of you have heard of Rabbi Hillel. He was a, a liberal theologian, theologian, and he would often, his school would often have debates with Rabbi Shammai, which held a more strict interpretation of the scripture. So you had these two schools going back and forth, Hillel versus Shammai. Uh, and they were very um, opposites in terms of their theology. Gamaliel discipled Paul prior to his conversion, and he appeared reasonable in this, in this text. Gamaliel comes out as the good guy, but keep in mind, Gamaliel is a Pharisee. 
And the Pharisees were often at odds with the Sadducees, and it was a constant power struggle between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It is possible that God used them at that time to preserve the life of the apostles because he wasn't done with them. And we know later on that they did die a martyr's death, but God wasn't ready for them to die. Or it could be that Gamaliel just was looking to score points against the Sadducees, and he wanted them to tone it down a little bit. Not really sure. But Gamaliel's axiom or premise was that there always have been false messiahs, and if it's not from God, it won't amount to anything. That's just basically what he's saying here. Thutis, Judas, and many others. Um, my question is, does anybody know any Thutians around or Judasians around? So in, in one sense, he's right. They did come to nothing after they were uh, scattered. But that's not necessarily 100% true in today's day because we know that many cults thrive and do well today. So even if it isn't of God, sometimes they still thrive. Verse 39, he said, you don't want to be found fighting against God. Now, when I was a little boy, I remember a title of a play that I never saw, but it's, it's been decades and I still remember the title. It was, it was called Your Arms Too Short to Box with God. Anybody ever heard of that? <laughs> If you're younger than me, you probably haven't. But um, I just was envisioning boxing with God. You know, God's there and you're there and you just can't reach him because he's just got this reach over you, right? But it, it just reminds me of this. Your arm's too short to box with God. You can't fight God. And, and my question is, did you ever get embroiled in a dispute or a debate and say at some point to yourself, why am I fighting this battle? Come on, don't tell me it's only happened to me. <laughs> why am I fighting this battle? What am I doing here? We will be persecuted for carrying the flag for God, but the Holy Spirit will always help to make us victorious if God is in it. Unconversely, though, sometimes we're involved in something where we're powerless. No matter what we do, we just can't get around it. You know, there's this obstacle. There's this thing in our life, and we just can't get around it. And it just feels sometimes like God is not in it. He's not empowering me. What's going on? We always need to examine ourselves whether we're fighting a righteous fight or not. We have to be open to that. The worst position to be in is if you think you're doing God a favor and you're fighting this battle and you find out you're fighting against God, right? And some may say, well, how do I know if I'm fighting against God? Well, sometimes it's obvious. <laughs> there's, right here it was obvious. There's, there's miracles. There's the Holy Spirit is working. They can't keep these guys in prison. I mean, sometimes you've got to say to yourself, what's going on here? And am I on the losing end of this battle? Now, in our time, in our understanding, one of the things we can tell is if we're fighting against God is, are, is what we're doing going against God's word. If what we're doing is going against the scripture, then we have a problem because this is our, our, you know, our measuring stick in a sense. And sometimes people who've been Christians for a while get involved in an issue and there's so much emotion attached to it that even when you give them the word of God, they say, well, I don't want to hear that because you know, this is what I want to do. We can never pull away from God's word. Again, this is our measuring line. The other thing is, are you in prayer? If we're in prayer, in constant prayer and fellowship with God, he reveals things to us. The other thing is, sometimes time will just tell. Sometimes time will go by and we'll look back and say, gee, I think I might have been fighting with God in that sense. And sometimes God is teaching us a lesson through that. We're there to learn a lesson. Verse 40. And then they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, 
they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So this is kind of weird. These guys agree with Gamaliel, and they beat the apostles anyway. Yeah, if it's, if it's of God, we could be fighting against God, so let's beat them, right? It makes no sense at all. But if you remember, it, it should remind you of someone, Pontius Pilate, same thing. I find no fault in this man. You know, I, I'm going to let him go. Eh, hey, guards, beat him. Beat him up a little bit. I don't get it. He's innocent. When you're on the side of evil, you'll always be unstable in your decisions. And that's what this is a picture of. You're just always going to be unstable. And my question is, do we think that we've sacrificed a lot for the Lord? Has anyone ever here been beaten for the testimony of Jesus? I haven't. Although I bet if we go to some other countries over the seas, we'll find that uh, people who have a testimony for Jesus have been beaten for that testimony. Have any of us been beaten at all in our lives? Well, I'm going to be 40 in September, and I remember when I was a teen, I got a beating that was good. There was this guy, he was a few years older than me and about 60 pounds my senior, and we got into this fight, and he beat me. <laughs> and the next day in the shower, I'm, I'm, you know, you always feel it the next day because the adrenaline goes the first day, and I'm showering, and I'm like, oh, there's a lump there. Oh, there's a lump there. How did he hit me in the back of the head like that? <laughs> Where was I in this whole thing? But to this day, I still remember that beating. I got a good beating. I, I deserved it. The, the, the apostles didn't. <laughs> so the question is, is um, you know, we think that we've sacrificed a lot for the testimony of Jesus Christ, but these guys really sacrificed for Jesus Christ. I still have my freedom. I still have my home. I still have my reputation. And I still have a job that, that puts food on the table. So I tell you what, I defer. I, if I'm looking for any, any big crowns in heaven, I defer to my brothers in India I defer to my brothers in Africa. I defer to my brothers in Iran, okay? Because they are really have some testimony for Jesus Christ. I got it easy here. And honestly, I think none of us American pastors, for the most part, really know what true sacrifice is. Because these guys, there's widows every day in these, in these persecuted nations. Um, I remember uh, Gospel for Asia. As a matter of fact, in September, we support Gospel for Asia. Uh, in September, we're going to have somebody come out who's been on the mission field in India speak to us about what goes on over there. Uh, I remember K.P. Yohannan, who's the founder of this organization, spoke at a men's retreat. And I never, I'll never forget the story. He talked about going to Bundi. <laughs> and I think Bundi is like northwest India. Some years ago, and him and some other Christians went there and went to give the gospel. And they got beat up. They got beat up bad. And, you know, he, the Lord had called him to go back there. And he said, Lord, I don't want to go back there. I got beat up and it hurt. <laughs> but he ended up going back and there was incredible fruit from his returning to that place. Uh, so, you know, it, it takes it to an, a whole new level when you're actually persecuted for your faith. So the early believers considered it an honor to suffer persecution for their faith. And many believers in persecuted nations today follow suit. Somewhere along the way, in our culture, we've accepted that it's, um, you know, to serve God and to be Christian is a casual thing. Just do it on Sunday. Remember, give them that one hour out of the 168 hours that are in a, work, in a, in a week. But it, it's really not supposed to be like that. I want to read uh, a devotional that I came across in the Daily Bread. Um, I don't read them in order. This one's actually from January 3rd. But it says, an eternal perspective, and I'll close with this. It says, in the movie Gladiator, General Maximus Decimus Meridius seeks to stir his cavalry to fight well in the imminent battle against Germania. Addressing his troops, he challenges them to give their very best. 
He makes this profound statement, what we do in life echoes in eternity. These words from a fictional military leader convey a powerful concept that is of particular significance to believers in Christ. We are not just taking up time and space on a rock that's floating in the universe. We are here with the opportunity to make an eternal difference with our lives. Jesus himself said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Having the perspective of living for eternity can make all the difference in this world. How can we learn to set our minds on things above? A good way to begin is to discover what our eternal God values. Throughout the pages of the Bible, he reminds us that he values people above possessions and our character above our performance. These are the truths that last forever. Embracing them can bring an eternal perspective to our daily living. What we do in this life echoes in eternity. And I just want to challenge everybody today to to just really think about that. And it certainly is a biblical theme. What we do in life has eternal consequences. Let's pray. Living for eternity can make